So our presentation today is What Happens When We Die by Eileen Hakus. She's a member of Prairie and has been a Unitarian Universalist for 30 years, and she has spoken to congregations in Colorado, Arizona, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Welcome, Eileen. So I know you're all here to hear the authoritative answer to what happens when we die. <laughs> I'm not going to give it to you. <laughs> but the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, the true nature of things is not to be born and not to die. Science can help us understand this because matter cannot be destroyed. It can become energy and energy cannot be destroyed. When we lose someone we love, we should remember that she has just taken on another form. That form may be a cloud, a child, or the breeze. We can see our loved one in everything. And smiling, we can say, dear one, I know you are there very close to me. I know that your nature is the nature of no birth and no death. I know that I have not lost you. You are always with me. In most systems of religious belief, a part of us is believed to exist after the body dies. What is sometimes referred to as the soul may be regarded as able to take a form that allows it to return to earth, or as the subject of future reward and punishment but clearly the question of what happens after we die is relevant. Just look at the number of young men in the Middle East who gave up their lives to become suicide bombers against the West, expecting 72 virgins to await them on the other side. When I was a child growing up as a member of the Jewish faith, belief in what happened to people after death was couched in mystery. Far from the certitudes given to my Christian friends, who were taught that their souls would go to heaven, hell, or purgatory, Judaism barely mentioned the existence of what was termed the olam haba, or world to come. As a result, I spent the first half of my life devoid of an opinion about what happens after we die. The first time I pursued an active inquiry of the subject was in 1989, when I participated in a professional training in hypnotherapy. During that training, my teacher spoke of a phenomenon which sometimes occurs when individuals are guided into the altered state of consciousness known as trance. In that state, he said, an individual might have an experience of him or herself in a time and place unrelated to this lifetime. He called that phenomenon past life regression. We discussed many explanations for this occurrence. Included was the notion that such memories were simply metaphorical expressions of events which had occurred in this lifetime. Another more esoteric explanation posited that such experiences belonged to others who had lived in what Edgar Cayce called the Akashic Records, 
a kind of library in the spirit realm where one could access information relevant to solving today's problem. My teacher, however, believed that past lives were real and that the best arguments were to be made for progression of the soul through a linear sequence of lifetimes and events. I reserved judgment about which, if any of these theories, was plausible and remained quite skeptical of them all until I experienced my own first past life regression. Now, some of you who have been in uh, circle suppers that I've attended have heard part of this story, so I hope you'll bear with me while I <laughs> share it with everyone else. So in our training, our exploration of past lives began with identifying a problem which appeared to have no cause in this lifetime. One such issue for me was my extreme and inexplicable fear of being attacked by a shark. This fear kept me out of the ocean long before Steven Spielberg released his blockbuster Jaws. I did go to the movie, but during the opening scene, I ran out to the lobby in a state of panic, reviling the producer for creating a film designed to traumatize its viewers and demanded my money back. You, ha you hadn't even seen the shark. Since I had not grown up by the ocean or remembered any harsh tales told to me about it when I was growing up, my extreme fear of sharks seemed to fit the bill as an issue which might have its origin in a previous life. At least, I was willing to take a look. During the process of transinduction, the student therapist guiding my experience instructed me to return to the first time I felt a fear of sharks. In a flash, I found myself in the middle of an ocean with a huge shark racing toward me not 10 feet from my face. At that moment, I felt terror in my body like never before in my life. According to those observing the session, my body became rigid, my face as white as a sheet. Unable to speak, I couldn't even communicate my experience to my student therapist. I was saved by a veteran staff member overseeing the process who realized something was wrong. She said, move the clock backwards to a time just before this scene, whatever scene it is that you're in. Immediately, I found myself in the hold of a large wooden ship bound for the new world. With me was my husband, in whose eyes I recognized my husband in this lifetime. He's hiding in the back. <laughs> we were stowaways. With the tossing and turning of the ship on the open sea, a large cask had become loose and rolled on top of him, pinning him to the floor. He was dying, so despite his protest that the captain and crew would have no mercy for the plight of a couple of stowaways, I revealed our presence and threw myself on their mercy. My husband was extricated and we were both promptly thrown overboard. Next, the facilitator instructed me to move the clock forward beyond my death to see what decision I had made based on the preceding events. In the world between worlds, I found I had decided that I would Always listen to my husband. 
This was a directive I was not conscious of fulfilling in our present day life. But in fact, in 1989, at the time of my hypnotherapy training, I would more often than not defer to my husband's judgment in matters of consequence. During the remainder of my session, I spoke to my husband on the plane of existence between lifetimes, released the guilt I had felt for our deaths, and came to understand that the attack of the shark was not a personal vendetta, but that ocean predator's natural purpose, to cleanse the ocean of injured, panicked creatures of all types. My experience of this past life memory could have been the product of an active imagination, but it was powerful enough to erase my phobia of swimming in the ocean and any irrational fear of being attacked by a shark. It also seemed to be a prof profound demonstration of the way in which the soul progressed from one physical incarnation to another. Over the next 30 years, I continued my journey of personal growth and employed past life regression to heal a range of other issues. A few years ago, I published a book about my experiences. And in case anyone's interested, I brought a couple of copies with me, although Judy's read it and she probably thinks I'm either foolhardy or extremely courageous to share it with anyone. So a disclaimer, some of the stories included in my memoir are not for the faint of heart. Nonetheless, 30 years ago, while a belief in reincarnation was new to me, it was by no means new to others. The idea that the soul moves from one body to another has been central to Eastern religions such as Hinduism for over 5,000 years. The multitude of modern books published on the subject include scholarly works recounting the stories of young children who demonstrate knowledge of distant villages or historical data to which they and their families had no access. Belief in past lives due to personal experience, scholarly research, or religious conditioning holds religious value as it provides comfort and release from the uncertainty of what lies beyond the grave. Unfortunately, some ill consequences of believing in past and future lives also exist. For example, the caste system in India was based on the precepts of reincarnation and cause and effect. For centuries, Hindu culture took a laissez-faire approach to assisting others due to a belief that in suffering, the untouchables were working out their personal karma. In that way, the unfortunate ones in society were marginalized and the enormous gap between the haves and the have-nots was rationalized. The flip side may be found in the lives of those who, wishing their souls to progress from this lifetime to the next, help the less fortunate in society. A Buddhist monk I heard spoke, I heard speak, talked about his very pragmatic motivation for living a nonviolent life. He believed he would be rewarded in his next one. A belief in reincarnation might also create greater motivation to care for our world, since we might be reborn into it at a future time. The other dominant religious belief about life after death is a belief in the existence of heaven and hell. 
Heaven has been defined as a place of supreme happiness and great comfort, the dwelling place of God and angels to which the blessed retire after death. Hell has been portrayed as a black and fiery place presided over by the devil where the damned are tormented throughout eternity. Belief in this paradigm took root in Christianity when decades after the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, the author of the book of Matthew wrote the following parable, quote, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But the story continues. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. In addition to questioning the rationality of a god who would condemn most of humanity for failing to embrace views which historically have been held by a relative few, practical problems may ensue by taking such metaphorical stories from the Bible literally. For example, some might view the suffering of human beings and our fragile planet as unimportant in view of the problem-free eternity awaiting the blessed in the world to come. But when parables have been used to separate the believer from the non-believer and the saved from the unsaved, millions have paid the price with their lives. During the Inquisition, the Crusades, and countless religious wars, the saved have obliterated the damned. The creation of such distinctions among people has created perpetual animosity within our human family. Personally, I have no patience for beliefs in which some reap the wards of adherence to religious doctrine while the rest suffer in hell. Even my daughter at the tender age of six possessed the wisdom to, pro to proclaim, there can't be a hell, mommy. God is too good to send people to a place like that. Good little you-you. <laughs> Perhaps the origin of the belief in heaven and hell is the supposition that if there is no punishment for the sinner and no reward for the saint, there might be no reason to be good. However, as a Unitarian Universalist and a student of psychology, I believe that people are born with inherent virtue. If they harm one another, it is probably because they have been harmed. My concept of the original sin is the very first time in human history that due to an imbalance in brain chemistry or by sheer accident, one of our homo sapiens ancestors traumatized another. 
The victim created by this violent incident became a perpetrator himself and launched a chain reaction of one person taking up arms against another, which continues to this day. When human beings are raised in an atmosphere of love and discipline and are free of severe trauma or brain disorder, right action follows and is its own reward. No promise of heaven or hell after life is needed to make us conform. Perhaps the belief of so many in some form of life after death has simply to do with the difficulty of accepting the loss of friends and family. It is comforting to hold to the idea that we will reconnect with our loved ones at a future time, in a future place. Despite this, many Unitarian Universalists give more sway to rationality than belief in an afterlife. For the secular humanists among us, it makes most sense to believe in what Alfred North Whitehead referred to as objective immortality. That is, that the influence we have on each other and the world is so significant that we obtain immortality objectively through the footprints and the stories that we leave behind. For this reason, he says, we should write our own stories well. Sherwin Newland, author of How We Die, wrote, the greatest, greatest dignity that may be found in death is the dignity of the life that preceded it. This is a form of hope we can all achieve, and it is the most abiding of all. Hope resides in the meaning of what our lives have been. What we may be able to know about life after death is the way in which we will be remembered in the hearts of those we have loved. In that way, we may be certain that something of who we are continues. In her book, Talking About Death, Virginia Morris writes, people tend to have strong beliefs about an afterlife, even though they may or may not have spent a lot of time thinking about it. In our congregation's conversation about this meaningful subject, can be a way in which we come to know each other a little better and appreciate each other a little more. The truth about what endures beyond our physical form will reveal itself in time. Let's share. Thank you.